You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. 1 Corinthians 12. There's a couple of um, prayer requests on the front end. Uh, Kimball Chambers and Sherry Chambers was in a pretty bad car accident yesterday in St. Paul's. Um, uh, Kimball's in the hospital down at Florence McLeod. I uh, don't think he has any broke bones, but pretty banged up. Uh, very serious accident. So if you could pray for their family, we'd appreciate that. And you continue praying for my family. Uh, my cousin I mentioned last week did pass away last Sunday morning while we were here, actually. And uh, then less than 25 hours later, his father also passed away. So um, I was in Wilkes all week uh, with family and uh, helping with funerals, and uh, it was a pretty difficult week. So if you could pray for Karen and uh, Sean, uh, that's uh, the brother and son and the wife uh, to my cousin, uh, Matthew and Garrett uh, as junior sons, and uh, found out this week that Garrett uh, is not following Jesus. So um, that's obviously another serious, serious need. So we're hoping that he'll come to faith in Christ uh, as a result of all that's went on this past week. First Corinthians chapter 12, let's pick it up in verse 12. Paul uses his favorite metaphor for the church, uh, and that is the body. So listen to what Paul says to the church at Corinth uh, concerning the importance of the body of Christ. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not the eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And of our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving great, greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. Father, we thank you and we remember where you've brought us from. We remember, Father, that we were lost, spiritually dead with no hope, and that yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died in our place and you gave us new life. Father, we remember the moment we became part of the body of Christ and we remember 
all that you forgave us of, and we remember that you gave us purpose and meaning, that there was an excitement there, that there was a desire to follow you. And Father, we remember that you have set us apart. And Father, we remember all the great good you've done in our life since that moment. So Father, we know that you've given us great purpose, you've given us a ministry and a mission, and you've equipped us to do exactly what you've called us to do. So Father, guide us in your word this morning. We need your help, we need your wisdom, we need your voice to be heard far above mine. And Father, that you'll be honored in this place today. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. Maybe you've had it said to you before, uh, maybe someone trying to compliment you, uh, wow, you're a spiritual person. Maybe someone who you work with or maybe someone who knows that, that you attend a church and are plugged into a church or maybe you open your Bible app during your lunch break and people see that and they go, wow, you're, you're a spiritual person. Maybe sometimes that prompts a conversation, maybe something they're dealing with. I, I get this sometimes when I'm you know, at a funeral or someone will pull me off to the side and know kind of what I do and what my profession is and they'll say, hey, you're spiritual. Can you, can you answer this question for me? And while in one sense they, they, they've got it right and that, that spiritually speaking and what the Bible says, I'm a spiritual person, but when they look at my life and they make that determination, it's because of the actions they see, because maybe I go to church or maybe, you know, uh, I lead my family differently. But that's really not the only thing that makes a person spiritual. As a matter of fact, Paul says that a spiritual person is a person who has the Holy Spirit living in them. And the Holy Spirit living in them means that they've come to a place in their life where they've surrendered their life to Christ. So a spiritual person, yes, on the one hand, is that they live differently, but the reason they live differently is because of a change that has happened in their life. You see, Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, ascended, and invites us to place our faith in him. He, he pursues us, even in our lost state. He invites us to place faith in him Obviously, once we do that and we come from death and the life, obviously, that's going to result in a life change. In other words, if, if the new birth is what we experience, if we get a brand new start, if we're forgiven of our sins, if we are set free from our past, then that obviously must translate into a life that is different. So on the one hand, yes, when people see your life differently than the rest of the world, they see you as a spiritual person, but the reason you're a spiritual person is because of the transformation that Christ has made in your life. Well, what Paul is going to talk about and what he's dealing with in this church at Corinth is the fact that there are spiritual people inside the church, but they are deeply confused about what it means to be spiritual. Because one of the reasons they're confused is because they're still wrestling with their old life and some of the old ways that they did things have come right into their church and right into this fellowship and now they're wrestling with who they used to be versus who they are now. Listen to what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can ever say, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now let me, let me frame what Paul's saying here before we get into the kind of the main part of the message. Paul says that now at this part, and in, in this point in the letter to this church at Corinth, he says, now I need to talk to you about spiritual gifts. He said, but before I talk about spiritual gifts, 
Let me first address the, 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 the deeper issue. The deeper issue is, is there's really only two groups of people. And you're in one of these two categories. Either you are a person who lives your life as though Jesus is Lord of your life, which means you've come to that place where you've surrendered your life to him. He's in control of your life. He's calling the shots. Or you're still living in control of your own life. And for these particular people that he's writing to, they were part of the pagan ritualistic practices of Rome and that's who they were before. And in those practices, those religion practices of Rome, worshiping the Caesars, there was part of their worship service that were very, well, wild and ecstatic. People would be speaking all kinds of weird, unknown languages. All kinds of things would be happening. They'd be claiming that there were healings happening in the worship of Caesar and the worships of the Roman gods. And all of this stuff was happening. And so when these people come to faith in Christ and they came into the church, they brought some of those old customs with them. And Paul says, on the one hand, some of you are truly born again, but you're still wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus. But for some of you, you're still lost. You've never been changed. And he says, anyone that doubts the reality of who Jesus is, that's what he means by Jesus is accursed, that no one who has the Holy Spirit living in them, no one who's been born again can truly say that Jesus, to follow Jesus would be a curse. So what Paul does at the very beginning before he ever gets into spiritual gifts is he talks about what it means to be a spiritual person, and then he's going to talk about what that means in relation to the local church. Now, I know that when we talk about spiritual gifts... It opens up a big old can of worms that, quite frankly, I ain't got time to get into today. Sorry for the bad English, but that's just the way it is. The whole concept of spiritual gifts, because I know what you're thinking right now. Oh, he's going to talk about speaking in tongues, and he's going to talk about healings. I would love to talk about that, and we will at some point, but I can't, I can't uncap that can of worms today. I will address some parts of it. The point of the, what we're trying to get across today is, in relation to what we've been talking about over the last few weeks, is what your role is in the local church. Last week we said that your role in a local church is not to be a spectator, but to be a participant. We're going to go a little deeper into that today because God has given you everything that you need. That video, what I love about that video and how well it fits in what we're talking about, you saw all the questions that were asked, and what did they do? They gave you an answer to those questions. Oftentimes what happens is, is we begin to offer excuses. We know the answers to the questions, we just offer excuses to not engage. Paul's going to give us three specific truths in verses 12 and following, where we're going to focus today. And in those truths, what he's going to say to us very clearly is that a spiritual person, a person who's born, been born again, a person who has the Holy Spirit living inside of them, well, that means something in relation to the, the body of Christ. So we're going to take a look at that. So before we do, we need to take a look at some other verses. Pick it up in verse 4. So to kind of set the stage, before we get into these three truths, we need to talk a little bit about spiritual gifts. What are they? How did we get them? What's the point of them? Well, Paul kind of, kind of opens that can of worms in verse 4. Now, Paul's going to have several more chapters where he's going to unpack that. I don't have the opportunity to do all that today. That's why we're not going to go too deep here. But I do want to kind of hit the surface. Look at verse 4. He says, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Now, here's, here's what, what Paul is saying. Paul is directing our attention not only to the reality that we've all been gifted by God, but that God empowers those gifts for a specific purpose. So let me, let me kind of go back to the moment 
that you placed your faith in Jesus, whether you were eight years old or 80 years old, let's go back to that moment in time. Now, I'm hoping that every person in this room can go back to that moment in time. Now, if you're wrestling right here, and by the way, I'm not so concerned about what you did if you walked an aisle or went far to vacation. I'm not so concerned about the specifics of whether it was a, a, a set of steps in front of a building or uh, during a, a vacation Bible school. I'm not so concerned about that. What I'm concerned about is has your life changed since that day? So let's go back there for that moment. At that moment you put your faith in Jesus, there were several things that happened all at once that God did on your behalf. The first thing that God did, or one of the things that God did, is he justified you. That's a theological term. We call it justification. Here's what it means. God forgave you of all of your past. And, and all the punishment that you deserve for all the things that you've done wrong, in a single moment in time, when you put your faith in Jesus, all that Jesus did on your behalf on the cross becomes a reality in your life. In other words, God's wrath turns away from you. You are now declared, get this, holy. <laughs> You, listen, you became a saint at the moment you put your faith in Jesus. And I know that you're not feeling a whole lot saintly today, probably. I don't feel saintly every day. But the fact is, theologically speaking, doctrinally speaking, for what the entirety of the New Testament says, on the day you put your faith in Jesus, because you were justified at that moment, you became a saint. You probably need to look at your spouse and tell them, hey, you're a saint. Did you know that? You need to do that with a straight face, though. You were declared holy. Something else that happened at that moment, you were adopted. You became a son or a daughter of God at that moment. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit, part of the Godhead Trinity, lives inside of you. That happened in that single moment. But something else happened in that moment. You were given a gift. As if the gift of salvation, that was more than enough, right? The fact that, that we are now being adopted by God, God is our Abba, our dad, that we have the church as brothers and sisters in Christ. But God went even far beyond that because God had given the church, the body of believers, every believer in Christ, every new creation in Christ, we all are on mission together. So that no one could ever say that God gave us a task that we couldn't accomplish. You know what God did? God said, I'm going to give them all the tools that they need in one single moment. At the moment they come to faith in Christ, at that single moment when they're adopted, I'm going to give them everything that they need at that moment. Now that doesn't mean that we have a full understanding of everything. It just means that we have every tool that we need in our possession to do what God has called us to do at that moment. So there could never be an excuse to say, well, God called me to this, or God has asked the church to be on mission, but he hasn't given us the resources. It, the exact opposite is true. He's given us an abundance of resources. And he gave you a specific gift, at least one, if not more than one. Now listen to what he says. He says, but it is the same God who empowers them all. In other words, it's not about you trying to pull yourself up or you trying to energize this gift. God gave you the gift, and God empowers the gift that's in you to do what he's called you to do. Well, hold on. It gets even more interesting. He says to each one, verse 7, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. See the common good? What common good? Well, the common good of the church. And the common good of the church turns into the common good of a lost community. Remember, we've been called to make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. And Jesus said, I'm going to be with you in that mission even to the end of the age. And Jesus also said, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors yourself. Those two commands form the, the marching orders of every church, every New Testament church. Those are the marching commands. And every single member of every single church that has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit has been given the tools necessary to accomplish that mission. He says the common good. Now look at verse 8. He says, for, for to one is given the spirit of utterance, of wisdom, and the utterance of knowledge. Uh, we've got faith. We've got gifts of healing. We've got working of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, various kinds of tongues, the interpretation of tongues. And he says, all of this has been given by one spirit. And all of these, look at verse 11. This is a very important verse. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Is this where he's going to talk about speaking in tongues? Is this where he's going to talk about prophecy? Yes, but briefly, you're going to be disappointed. I'll just tell you now. Because to uncap that means we've got to get into about another three to four, at least Sundays, to, to really unpack it. But let me tell you this. No matter where you look in the New Testament, there, there are key passages. Uh, Romans chapter 12 is a key set of passages. Uh, there are several passages in both letters to the church at Corinth talking about spiritual gifts. Depending on who you talk to, some say there are 20 or even 25 spiritual gifts. There are others who say, no, there's only about eight, and there's everybody in between. And we have, whole, we have entire denominations, entire groups of churches that are built around a particular doctrine about spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecies, healings. So where, where are we at in all of this? Well, let me tell you where your pastor is. Your pastor does not believe that all of these gifts have ended. As a matter of fact, your pastor is not a cessationist. Let me, let me break, that's a theological term, let me break that down. There are several people, several churches, several pastors who believe, uh, take the position that there are certain gifts like speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, those gifts are no longer being given out to the church. The only problem with that position is, is I don't find scriptural support for it. And most of the time when that argument is being made, it's argued from history, not from scripture. So I don't take that position, but here's the position I do take. I do believe, based on verse 11 right there, that the Holy Spirit gives the gifts as he sees fit to the people he sees fit to give them to. And I do see in church history there are times where the Holy Spirit seems to not be giving out a particular gift. But then there are other times in other regions and other parts of the world where he is utilizing that gift. But here's the thing. Whatever the spiritual gift is, speaking in tongues, healing, wherever it is, it's got to be utilized within the confines of clear, revealed Scripture. Because guess what Paul does for the next several chapters? He tells the church at Corinth they're using those gifts in the wrong way. As a matter of fact, what is happening in the church at Corinth is they've become divided over spiritual gifts. And, and some of them were saying, oh, I've got this gift, so I'm better than you. And there were some people in the church who were going, oh, I don't have that gift, so therefore I'm not part of the body. So Paul has to deal with this. And what he says is, is that every gift is given by the Holy Spirit. Every gift was given to the individual with that individual in mind. Every gift is empowered by God, and every gift is given for the common good and for the building up of the local church. So, what's Paul going to teach us now about the use of spiritual gifts? Well, he's not going to deal with that first. He's going to deal with what it means to be part of the body and to be gifted. Now, he's going to get into spiritual gifts. He's going to get into prophecy. He's going to get especially into speaking in tongues because that was one of the gifts that was being misused in the church at Corinth. But what we're going to deal with today 
is what it means to be a member of the local body and the gift that you've been given, whatever that gift is. So pick it up in verse, four, verse 12. So Paul is going to use his favorite metaphor. And his favorite metaphor is the body. So look what he does. Verse 12, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized. We're not talking about water baptism here. We are not talking about that at the moment you become, the moment you place yourself as a candidate for water baptism, that it's at that moment you receive some kind of spiritual gift. There are, there are churches that take the position that when you're water baptized, whether they sprinkle or whether they immerse, that if you don't speak in tongues at the very moment after you get baptized, then, then you're not saved. Can I just tell you that's heresy? I want to be very clear here. It's heresy. It's not true. Nowhere in the Bible. And right here in verse 11, it says that the Holy Spirit gives to everybody the gifts that he sees fit. Not everybody gets the same spiritual gift. So the idea that everybody must speak in tongues is not biblical. I want to be very clear on that. So he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about being immersed into the body of Christ. Notice what he says. He says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And this is how we know he's talking about the body of Christ. Jews, Greeks, slave or free, we were all made to drink one spirit. So the spirit apportions those gifts. The spirit empowers those gifts. The spirit takes into consideration who the person is when the gift is given. And therefore, all those gifts are given to build up the body of Christ. Verse 14. And this comes to our first truth. And the first truth is, is no member of the body is insignificant. Because how often have I said this, and maybe you've said this too, man, when I look at the church as a whole and I look at all the people serving in all these different ways, I don't really have anything to give. I don't have anything to offer. I don't have anything that I can give to the church. So I'm just an insignificant person. What could I possibly give to the church? Or what kind of service could I render that would ever make any difference? Well, that's thinking of yourself as insignificant. And what Paul's going to say right here is no member of the body is insignificant. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not the eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So here's what Paul does. It's really kind of a, kind of a ludicrous, really, if you think about it, uh, metaphor, but it gets the point across. You know, your foot is in a shoe all day, got a sock on, it doesn't smell all that great, especially for some of you teenagers. I know what's going on with you guys with your feet. I got some teenagers in my house, listen, I, I feel your pain. But the foot, in Paul's metaphor here, the foot says, gets up one day or comes to the realization one day, why can't I be the hand? I mean, look at the hand. The hand's out here in the air. The hand's doing all kinds of important stuff. Why can't I be the hand? I don't have anything to offer. I'm just a foot, right? I'm just in this smelly shoe and this smelly sock in the dark all day. What possible benefit am I to the body? Well, that's kind of ludicrous, isn't it? Well, it's just as ludicrous for a person who's born again to say, I have nothing to offer. Paul says that just as ludicrous as that is, the foot is no less a part of the body. Because what happens when we have to take a step to go somewhere? Well, that foot's kind of important at that point, isn't it? And if you've ever broken a toe, you ever broke a toe? Every second of your day, you're reminded of how important your foot is. I know that some of you, we've got some folks in our church that uh, 
have struggled with diabetes and you've had to have some of your toes removed just because of the issues that come with diabetes. And, and, and if you just talk to any of those folks, they'll tell you, when you lose a toe, it affects everything. It affects how you walk. It affects how you, how you step. It affects everything, your balance. So even down to the smallest toe on your foot is significant. And that's what exactly what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying that there are no members of the body, people who've born again, people who have the Holy Spirit. There is no one insignificant. So we're trying to, to use that as some excuse, or we're trying to use that as something to say to get us out from out of the idea of, of serving, well, it's not going to work. It may get you through this life without having to actually do anything, but when you stand before the Lord, the Lord's not going to accept that. Because he he's going to say, I give you everything that you needed, yet you never utilized any of it. We have a lot of police officers. We have uh, folks who, who volunteer as as firemen, firemen, firewomen who serve in those ways and volunteering. We have um, a lot of school teachers. Uh, we have a lot of people who work in a lot of different service-oriented uh, jobs. What, what is it that gets them out of bed every day and goes back to work even after they've had a horrible week or even a horrible year? What is it that gets them up? What, what, why is it that they go out of their house and go back to their job, go back to driving the school bus, go back to the classroom, go back into the ambulance, go back into the ER. Why, why do they do that? It's because of significance. They want to have an impact. They, they want to use the training that they've received for the purpose by which it was given to them, by the, by the, for the purpose of which they sought out that career. They sought out that career and there's other industries I could talk about, but they, they went into teaching, they went into the medical field, they went into these areas because they wanted to help people, they wanted to impact people. Significance. Paul says, within the body of Christ, there are no insignificant members. Every single person is valuable. Every single purpose, person has a ministry and a purpose to fulfill. But not only is no member of the body insignificant, but no member of the body is independent. Look at this. He says, pick it up in verse 21. He says here in verse 21, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. So then he flips the metaphor and he says, now let's go the, the other extreme. On the one hand... There are those of you who are saying, I'm insignificant, I have nothing to offer. He says, that's, that's not true. But there's an opposite and equally horrible bad thing to think, and that is, is that you can do it all. Is that we don't need some of these other folks. We can do it ourselves. We have all we need. You get into a role in the church, serving in the church, and if you're not careful, you can become arrogant and prideful to the point to say, I can do it all. I had a guy one time years ago who took a spiritual gifts inventory. I don't know if you know what that is. It's a little test you can take that kind of helps you determine maybe how God's gifted you. I don't put a lot of weight to those, but they're kind of interesting. He took one, and I think the questions on the test, I think it was about 150 questions on this test. It was pretty thorough. And, and we were going to meet back up and talk about what he found out. And in and, and this particular test, there were 12 spiritual gifts, 12 possibilities. So when we sat down to meet, I said, well, what did you find out? He was supposed to have found out that maybe he has two spirits. This is like his primary and his secondary. You know what he told me? I'll never forget it. He looked at me and says, I found out that I've got all 12. Wow. I only know of one other person that had all 12, and that, that was Jesus, and you're not him. 
They probably have more to do with pride and arrogance than anything. No member of the body is independent from the whole. He says here that the members of the body have been arranged together. Many different members, one body. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 25. He says that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, they all suffer together. In other words, we are not independent from the whole. We are not here just to kind of do it our way. And it's not about all about you, and it's not all about me. If you've come to starting point, you've heard me say this, and it's worth saying again. The authority at this church is not me. I am not the head of this church. Thank God for that. We'd be in a mess of trouble. I am one member of this church who has a particular calling on his life, and you've entrusted some things to me, but my role is no more important than the one who's serving in the nursery right now. My, my role in this church is not more important than the folks who serve all over this church every week and all in our community. My role is, is no better. It's just different. So we are not only not insignificant, but, but we can't be independent either. We can't isolate ourselves from the whole. We, we can't make it all about us. We can't, we can't become the central focus. And one of the things that disqualifies you from serving in a ministry in the church is when you make it all about you. That's not how God has set up the church. That was not his intent. He says that we are important, but we can't operate as though we're independent. And then this moves us to the next one, verse 23. We are interdependent. So, so we are not insignificant, we're significant. We are not to be independent we're to work together. And not only work together, but we're dependent upon one another. Look at what he says here. He says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In any given week, with this church and with the ministry, there are things that go on behind the scenes that you never see. But, but these roles are so vitally important that if, if these folks didn't serve in these roles, we'd be in big trouble. Let me, let me just give you one example. I'll give you two. First example, tomorrow morning, there's a group of people going to come to this church. You have no idea they're coming. You might even not, not, not only know, you might not know who they are. But most of the time, this is how they operate. They don't really want to be known. They don't want to be brought up on the stage. But this is a, a vital ministry that they provide to our church every single week. You know what they do? They come in here on Monday, they gather all the things that have been given, all the monies that have been given, anything that's put in these black boxes, this lot, anything that came in kind of through uh, Sunday school, the children's ministry. And you know what they do? They go in a room, and they have, they have a process by which they do this. I don't even know what it is, but it's pretty, pretty precise on how they do this. And they count everything. They document everything. They, if you put $10 in an envelope to Lottie Moon, they document on your name document that, that, that so-and-so gave 10 bucks to Lottie Moon. Somebody's got to do that because we've got to be good stewards of what you give and we've got to be transparent and we've got to have people who are trustworthy, who love this church to do that ministry. And it can't be me. You do not want me and I don't touch any of the money. I don't have anything to do with money. I don't know what you give and I never want to know. So I'm, I stay away from that. 
Kim stays away from it. She has a role that she plays. But this counting team has a role that they play. And the two facets and the finance team all work together to make sure that we are transparent, that we're handling money correctly, and that we're above reproach. If that ministry did not occur on Monday, do you know what kind of mess we'd be in in short order? Now, some people would say, well, that can't be as important as the preacher or what he does. Oh, my goodness. It's vitally important to the church. Let me tell you about another group. There's a group over here in the children's building. You just saw a video talking about what they're doing. Did you know that 40% of the baptisms we've had over the last nine years is because of children's ministry? You want to have some fruit. You want to see some fruit be born from serving in a ministry. The children's ministry is a place where you can serve and see children who come in maybe into the, into the uh, infant room. And you begin to love them and care for them and and then you see them kind of move up into first and second, third, fourth grade. And then you see them come to that place where they come to faith in Christ and we baptize them. You had a part in that. We don't provide child care. We provide children's ministry. There's a difference. Because we want to invest in loving those kids and pointing them to Jesus as early as we possibly can. So you want to talk about a ministry that has some fruit, a ministry that is incredibly vital to our church, just as vital as the counting team that is here on Monday, just as vital as the building and grounds team that keeps up, just as vital as the security team who are out there right now making sure that we're safe. You see where I'm going here? No insignificance, no no independence where we're operating as a lone ranger, but we're interdependent upon one another. And Paul says here, if one member suffers, we all suffer. If one is honored, we all rejoice. You know what's happening there? Paul says that we're not against each other. That if there's a brother or sister in our fellowship that's being blessed by God, we celebrate that. If there's a brother or sister in our congregation that is hurting, we hurt with them. But not just within our own fellowship. Get this. If God is blessing a church across town, they're seeing people come to faith in Christ, you know what we should do? We should celebrate that. We are not in competition with our brothers and sisters across this community who meet at a different location than we do and have a different name on the sign out front. If we are together on the gospel, I'm not talking about cults. I'm not talking about people who've abandoned the word and abandoned. I'm talking about brothers and sisters in Christ and churches who stand upon the gospel, regardless of what name they've got on the front of the building. They're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're not in competition with them. Last I could see that our county is white with harvest. What's lacking is workers ready to enter the field. So if God is blessing a church somewhere, whether that be financially, whether that be with baptisms, we need to celebrate that right along with them because we're not in competition, folks. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Not only within the membership here, not only within the fellowship here, but also when God is doing something and other brothers and sisters in their fellowship. There was a little poll done not long ago, I think it was in 2018, where they polled people from all over the world, different countries, to ask them, what is your greatest fear? And of course, the usuals come up, you know, the fear of death and, and the fear of, um, you know, dying and not being able to, their family not being able to support themselves or, you know, and then there's all the fears of, you know, like spiders and everything else. But, but there was an interesting um, commonality that kind of came out of this study. As a matter of fact, of all the people they studied, one out of five had this fear. It's living a life without any purpose. 
maybe that's how you would answer. If someone asked you, what is your greatest fear? That if you had a little bit of moment of time to reflect, you would say, you know, one of the things I fear is to live my whole life and really never live on any kind of purpose, never have to leave any legacy behind or have any impact. Well, as they asked people from all over the world, this is some of the responses they got. This was from Anthony in New York. He said, my biggest fear is never taking a risk in an effort to find my true calling. Rebecca in Stuttgart, Germany said this, my greatest fear is to go through life living small but not realizing it until it's too late. Did you get that? Living small. That there was more that she was supposed to do, but she never, ever realized it until it was too late. Danielle in Sacramento, California said this, my greatest fear would be missing out on my purpose here on earth. I know I have purpose that I am not yet serving. Luciana in Portugal said this, to go through life without leaving a positive mark. Ralph in North Brunswick said this, my greatest fear is regretting that all that I didn't do as I lay in my hospital bed, bed as an elderly man. Regretting all that I didn't do, all that I should have done, only to find myself in my dying moments and be filled with regret. I wonder how many of us share those fears. Here's the thing, here's, here's what Paul's telling us. You know, with all the controversy about all the different spiritual gifts within this church and even today in the modern church, let's set all that aside. Whether, you, whether speaking in tongues or prophecy or healing, let's set all that aside. And let's say this. Let's come to this place of conclusion. Every single believer in Christ has been given a spiritual gift. And there is the potential for you to waste your life and waste the gift that you've been entrusted with. If you've been born again, you've been given a gift. If you have a gift, it's been intended to you to be used in the building up and the common good of the local church and the mission that it is on. But it is possible for you to waste that entire gift. It is possible for you to go through life living in disobedience, never doing what Christ has called you to do, while at the same time looking for purpose somewhere else. All the while, Christ is saying to you, you've got all you need. When are you going to be obedient to what I've given you? When are you going to be part of the body? Because you have a role to serve, and until you start serving it, until you start doing what God has called you to do with the equipping that God has given you, somebody else is having to fill in. They're not passionate about it, they're not gifted there, but because they love the church, they're going to do it. Paul says that you're not insignificant. You're very significant. You've been given a gift, and God took the time in the moment that he saved you to give you at least one, maybe two gifts to be used in the local church, to be used in the mission that it's on. The gospel not only gives new life, but it gives new purpose. It gives, it gives new mission. It gives, it gives you a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Listen, I don't get out of bed and serve Christ because I'm a preacher. I get out of bed and serve Christ because I've been born again. I, I don't come to this place to serve because you're paying me to. I come to this place to serve because this is what God's called me to do. And you can stop paying me tomorrow. I'll still show up on Monday. That's what I've been called to do. What about you? 
Are you still looking for that purpose of meaning out there somewhere? Do you, do, have you come to the place where you think, well, I don't have anything to offer, where you're lying to yourself and you're believing exactly what Satan would have you to believe? You want to worship God? You want to take your worship to the next level? It's not another song on Caleb that's going to do it. What's going to take your worship to another level is when you serve him with the gifts that he's given you. That's when worship becomes real, amazing, and beautiful. So what are you waiting for? Paul's taking away pretty much every excuse that we've got. Maybe, maybe you don't have a spiritual gift. If you don't have a spiritual gift, you know what that means? It means you've not been born again. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth and the beauty of your word. And Father, we thank you for your, a church, a body of believers that has people serving in a thousand different ways, sacrificially every week, week after week, not letting, looking for a pat on their back, not looking for any kind of recognition, but just because they love you and they love the local church. But Father, we also know that we have more ministry, more places to serve than we have people serving. Father, there are missions and opportunities that you are opening doors to that, quite frankly, is going to require people. You've already gifted them. You've already set them apart. All that is left is for them to be obedient, to allow you to use their gift for the common good, for the mission that we are on together. So, Father, what is next for that believer who's been gifted is really just a step of obedience. But before we can be obedient, we must repent, acknowledge the fact that we've been wasting what you've given us, and then start afresh. Father, for the ones maybe that just realize today that the reason they don't have any giftedness, the reason they don't feel connected, the reason that the church is just something they do is maybe because deep down they know that they've never come out of darkness. They've never received that gift. Well, today will be a great day. Today will be a wonderful day for them to place their faith completely and totally in you. We ask all this in the strong and powerful name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.